Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In the book, there's a section where lots of readers have responded to where she's just getting the taxi home even though she's sort of alone in the back of the taxi she's still got that camera lens and she's sort of looking out the window and almost posing but for nobody and I, I do think sadly that yeah Margaret Atwood is right and that the power of male gaze is so acute that even in our alone time we're still sort of arranging ourselves and imagining what we would be perceived as to to men and to the patriarchy. Welcome to another season of Alonement, the podcast about the time you spend alone and why it matters. I'm your host, Francesca Spector, author of Alonement, How to Be Alone and Absolutely Own It, and a former extreme extrovert who, a few years ago, discovered the life-changing power of taking some time to myself. On this show, I interview fascinating people who can give inspiration and practical advice on how to make your alone time the best it can be. Because when alone time isn't lonely, it's alonement. This week, I have the absolute pleasure of speaking to one of my favorite authors, Holly Bourne. After beginning her novel writing career in the young adult genre, Holly has released three brilliant titles for adults over the past few years, which are full of wise reflections on relationships, navigating social pressure, and recovering from trauma. She's influenced in part by the five years she spent working as an online agony aunt for a youth charity, specializing in relationships and mental health, and her present role as the youth ambassador for Women's Aid. Her honest, empathetic writing has made me and so many others that I know feel less alone. Saying that, I can't wait to see what she has to say about alonement and what it means to her. Before we get to the episode, I want to give a big shout out to this season's sponsor, Flashpack, a travel company for solo travellers in their 30s and 40s, providing boutique group adventures all around the world. There's trips to Bali, Morocco, Sri Lanka, Japan. The world is your oyster. I've been working with Flashpack since the beginning of this year. And last April, I had the chance to experience one of their adventures for myself, traveling the hotspots of Colombia. I made so many new friends, many of whom I'm still in touch with, and had the kind of colorful, memorable experiences I'd been craving for the past couple of years of lockdown, including salsa dancing, boat trips, and eating delicious South American cuisine. What's incredible about going away with Flashpack is that you get the best of both worlds. 
Wonderful company, if you'd like it, and the ease of having someone else sort out the logistics, but also the independence of choosing where and when you'd like to have an adventure. If you'd like to experience a flashback holiday for yourself, they've provided an exclusive discount offer to all Alonement listeners. Quote the code ALONEMENT to give you £100 off your dream trip today. Holly, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. And I've just learned in the lead up to this conversation uh, that you're a new mother. So to begin with, congratulations. Um, <laughs> oh, thank you. Secondly, what does alone time mean to you at the moment? There is absolutely none. I... <laughs> People Suspected. told me there would be none and I was like, ah, it can't be that relentless. And no, they were right. Yeah, I think I've still got the issue of heat magazine I bought in hospital. Don't know what I thought labor would be like if I bought a magazine. <laughs> and uh, still haven't finished reading it. So I don't yet know if Meghan Markle and Harry are going to come to the Jubilee celebrations. Ooh. <laughs> that sounds like little alone time I've had. <laughs> Oh well, gosh! I mean, you're in, on tender hooks in all of all of Harry and Meghan's life choices at the moment. I know, so, yeah. And, so nobody spoiler that. Well, Meghan has recently released a podcast, so maybe maybe you can uh, listen to that at some point. Fill, fill you and you and baby in on on those antics. <laughs> and so I'm curious, you know, generally you're a terrifyingly prolific writer. I know you've written over ten novels at this point. Writing is a notoriously solitary profession. So over the years, what what is your relationship with the word alone been like? Yeah, because it is quite notorious. And lots of authors I know are happy, especially when they're on deadline, to just, you know, kind of go into full goblin mode and and not see anyone or do anything until their draft is finished. And I can't cope like that. I was a journalist for years and that's a very chatty profession, which involves like a huge amount of teamwork. So yeah, me, I'm not a natural novel writer in terms of that being alone and just tip tap tapping. And so I do tend to try and meet up with other authors and other writers and journalists as much as possible to try and work with them because I'm not my best by myself in my on my desk I tend to get a little bit sad but when I talk to other also I'm like do you want to meet up and write and they're like no <laughs> then, I won't get, then I won't get any writing done and I'm like yeah but then we won't be alone <laughs> but I think I'm getting better I think being alone is definitely something I really feared in my 20s and um yeah since turning 30 I remember I made myself before I turned to the age of 30 because I hated my own company so much I made myself take myself out for dinner and just sit there with myself and actually had a really lovely meal (laughs) that was like the beginning of my new relationship of starting to enjoy it a bit more so now I'm getting better at actually writing by myself rather than trying to just recruit some other poor writer to kind of sit with me in a British library well you know I think there is a perfect formula and I'm yet to find my person with this but I love to write or be you know very creative and in the flow with someone else there but we have to have this almost mutual agreement that we just do not talk and it's it's very rare I think that even I, I'll have it occasionally I'll invite a friend to my co-working space and I feel like this notorious sort of awful bitch all day because I'm like yes like I really enjoy you being here silently and it's really <laughs> hard to get that arrangement isn't it it is. I would recommend the reading rooms in the British Library. You can get membership to them and they're silent only. And it's just a bit like everyone's doing their homework vibe. And so I have often met authors and writers 
at the British Library and we go into the reading room where like these men will come and yell at you if you've been like tapping your keyboard too much and you're like okay let's do two hours and then we'll go in and you kind of go out for coffee and so you've got these intense sight you know you're alone and it's silent but everyone else around you is is in alone silent mode too and then you get to go to the coffee shop next door although the coffee is like seven pound fifty for a life <laughs> <laughs> and you're like both like ah, I can talk I can talk you get out and then you go back in again to the silence so the British Library is very good for uh, that particular issue wow I think that amazing I mean because there's no a mutually agreed upon policy you don't even have to have the the awkwardness around it perfect brilliant so the center of alone togetherness is the British Library just yeah. giving that giving that a big plug here and there's a Pizza Express over the road. It's just everything you need in life, really. Which is dreamy. Which is dreamy. <laughs> <laughs> and so you spoke about the first time you sort of took yourself out for dinner alone at age 30. I know what I love about eating alone. I'm sure many people listening to this have their own experience of that. What was it that attracted you so much to it once you'd done it? What was the appeal? I think it was getting over that fear, actually, because I think sometimes the anticipation or the thought of it is so much not as bad as as it is. And actually, it can also be pleasurable. And I think I was like, well, what will I do? And you know and are people going to give me funny looks and and then you realize oh nobody cares like <laughs> you're not a main character in anything else's <laughs> life yeah you're just like oh why was it so scared of this and actually just being with yourself going I'm not bad company actually and maybe I thought I was bad company in myself but you know I'm actually quite you know this isn't so much and I can stay for as long as I want or I can leave earlier than I want to and you kind of realize that being alone yeah it's, it's quite relaxing compared to sort of you know the social anxieties you get with being with another person even if it's enjoyable which is what if they want to stay for another drink but you're knackered or what what if you're worried that you've talked too much all this sort of stuff when you're just with yourself you can just do whatever you want and don't have to worry that you're embarrassed yourself yeah I think that's a really nice way of summarizing it isn't it because I think you know we're all performing to some extent around other people and and maybe we don't realize the extent of it until we are alone and there's that sense of oh I can order what I want without worrying whether it would be good for sharing or leave when I want stay when I want Mm. Uh, I had a guest earlier on in the season Emma Forrest who was telling me that her favorite thing to do alone is go to the cinema and then leave halfway through the movie which sounded bonkers but I guess it's that ultimate freedom to do something so taboo yeah oh god I don't think I think I'm so used to socially placating people that I wouldn't I'd be scared to leave the cinema in case I upset the filmmaker even though they couldn't see that I was (laughs) (laughs) oh my god or I'd be scared that that would upset the other people I don't know if I would be able to walk out but um going to the cinema by myself that took me until 35 that was like my next thing and then I was like this is great nobody else wants to see this film about Bruce Springsteen with me I'm gonna take myself out and then of course (laughs) the moment I did it I was like why didn't I go to the cinema by myself ideas this is wonderful yeah that definitely is the gateway drug and it's interesting when we're talking Mm. about kind of being shaped by others and how we sort of change our desires our natural behaviors and also to fit what other people want particularly your most recent book girlfriends you talk about for those who won't have yet read it it deals with how a female friendship is effectively shaped by a sort of patriarchal male culture I think that was really interesting as I was reading it I'd never really thought about friendship in that context or indeed like female desire within 
that context. Do you think that spending time alone can almost help us to, I don't know, eclipse that sense of cultural conditioning from what other people want? I'm not sure because, yeah, because Girlfriends was about exploring yeah, how female friendship is influenced by the male gaze and patriarchy. And it kind of was inspired by this quote from my girl Atwood that oh, I shouldn't really, before I start promoting this novel, make sure I know this quote off by heart, but it's to do with <laughs> how the power of the male gaze is so acute that even that you become your own voyeur basically and even when you're by yourself you're imagining what a man would be seeing when he's watching you and that's how powerful Mm. it is and that was sort of like the quote that I had on the wall when I was writing this book and kind of thinking what does it mean for us as women when even we are away from men we're still and we're in the safe space of female friendship which is this wonderful rejuvenating mostly nourishing great thing that's actually part of us always kind of thinking who's prettiest here or how would a man see this in the way that you kind of always got I don't know like a camera rolling on you and thinking that like a man is watching even if they're not there and that messed me up when I read that Margaret was quite <laughs> messed me up so much I decided to write a whole book about it and I'm like so it, it yeah it penetrates female friendship and that's what the book explores but I'm like hmm does being alone mean that you escape it and when we were just talking about me sitting having a meal by myself which was meant to be this massive act of empowerment I think I'd be lying to you if it wasn't part of me still that had that camera lens kind of going oh she's an interesting woman you know she's wonder you know imagining that maybe somebody would be looking at me going oh why she got lunch by herself and that's a nice outfit and I you know it's not like I just went out in trackies on and in no makeup I was still performing the acts of a woman having dinner by herself you know as if people cared you know as if there was that sort of male gaze where I'm playing this sort of character and yeah if I think about it too much it makes my brain hurt even though I wrote a whole novel exploring this very thing so and in the book there's a section where lots of readers have responded to where the main character Fern has had this wonderful evening with just her female friends and they're dancing like crazy and she's having the best time and then she suddenly goes oh what would I look like to a man right now if I was dancing and suddenly she can't dance as well and when she's just getting the taxi home even though she's sort of alone in the back of a taxi she's still got that camera lens and she's sort of looking out the window and almost posing but for nobody and I do think sadly that yeah Margaret Atwood is right and the power of male gaze is so cute that even in our alone time we're still sort of arranging ourselves and imagining what we would be perceived as to to men and to the patriarchy I don't know do you agree or am I just um, a massive poser by my in my own company no I think you know what I think I completely get it and you know in in that scene I know that you know it progresses if I remember correctly she then goes home to her partner and effectively wants to have that validation from him that she doesn't get that you know you are almost feeding off the energy and, and validating it and being part of that fun with her I think it's interesting. I think that these spaces all play a part. And there is something about being in public, I suppose, versus being in private. Like I've done the same thing. I think going out for dinner alone, I'll almost feel like I need to look that little bit nicer. I previously thought about it, I suppose, as an armor. And it is that to an extent. But then as a woman, you're not really you know, the gold standard isn't being neutral, being unseen. The gold standard, I suppose, is putting on makeup, wearing a nice dress, doing that. I think it's an interesting question of would this feel better? Would this feel more enjoyable if I could be completely 
private and unseen. That said, I'm thinking about we were comparing sort of cinema trips and restaurant trips. And I think that cinema for a lot of people, watching a movie alone is the sort of almost like less complicated, almost more easily accessible form of kind of public alonement because you are sort yeah. of private. Yeah, because you're in the dark and nobody can see you dropping you know, popcorn down your bra and then picking it out later when you told yourself you wouldn't because that's gross and then you run out of popcorn you're like I know there's two kernels still in there (laughs) yeah it's like you can just sort of be uh, yeah a little as I said before like a goblin in a cinema in the dark by yourself and nobody else can see you because they're all watching the film so I think that is yeah I think cinemas are different because the gaze is so you you're literally in the pitch black (laughs) so that is where you really relax and that's why I'm so annoyed at myself I think for waiting 35 years before I went to the cinema (laughs) myself because it's there isn't that performance element when the lights go down I think part of me when I went to cinema for the first time by myself was again still I'm a woman and I'm going to cinema myself and I'm going to say ticket for one in a really confident voice at the thing even though nobody cares and nobody's listening and yet they've still got this voyeur in my head and I want to be I don't know Carrie Bradshaw or, you know this sort of thing but yeah the moment the lights go down I'm just like yeah becoming a disgusting individual who's <laughs> bought the entire snacks section of cinema out and just dropped it down her front I adore that image <laughs> <laughs> basically we're just like you know spending half the time watching the movie half the time popcorn fishing really but no one can see (laughs) yeah I don't know it's definitely interesting I think that there is such an intersection really of the patriarchal society we all live in and then you know where does alone time come into that where does sort of private and public joy come into that and when can we escape it and there's something special altogether I think about female friendship because at its best, when I'm out for dinner with my best friend, which, you know, I have learned is, is I think, inevitably better, even when I'm in a relationship, than, than a romantic dinner. Because you can really be yourself and you don't really, you're not worrying about all this sort of conditioning, about being attractive necessarily. You're just there. And it, it's like you get the illusion of privacy because you're so, you're in that intimate space, but you're also enjoying being at a restaurant. But I don't know, I remember when I was younger and it, you'd be out at a club particularly and half half your brain would be like oh am I being noticed are we being noticed and it's really hard to escape that so I think that when you can find that sense that it's just you guys in the room then that's really special Mm. but I think you know the scene from your book that you referenced that is them having dinner at home isn't it the three of them and they're sort of dancing in private so there really is that sense of being away Mm. and I wanted that book to really it's it's a book that really looks at some uncomfortable truths about female friendship um because I'm somebody who massively champions female friendship and thinks it's just the best thing about being a woman it's almost worth all the other crap that you deal with and I think it's magical and transformative and yeah I feel sorry for men that they don't have female friendship as it were in the way that women are with each other um especially when men can't see them but yeah I did want the book to really explore some uncomfortable truths about female friendship because I think it's sometimes it is currently quite fetishized and I think there are some conversations to be had about toxic friendships and jealousy and how patriarchy impacts female friendships so that we can understand our friendships better and so the book is really like poking those those wounds and me wanting to kind of explore them 
but I did want a lot of a book to just be celebrating as you said those moments where you're having such wonderful time with your female friends that the gaze goes away and just the sanctuary of female friendship and the pure giddy hilarity laughing until you cry nobody understands you the way that your female friends do just dressing up for each other celebrating each other just that that ridiculously deep love and sense of humor that we all share I really wanted the book to have that as well but just kind of show that just the bottom of that can fall out at any given moment because because of yeah patriarchy ruins everything (laughs) (laughs) you know it's nice to see that nuance and I think that you know, if we if we talk about female friendship in the sort of you know one-sided uh, you know Spice Girl era way, we're not really giving it enough dignity. Almost, we're not even. I don't really know if dignity is the word, but we're not really giving it enough airtime, enough validation of the complexity. Like these people aren't just there to sort of be the supportive best friend character in a rom com. They're there to be full, rich, complicated relationships in the same way that our romantic relationships. Ah, oh, and you know, actually, you know, coming on to that, I know that this is a book about friendship primarily at the, you know, at the heart of it. But I think what I saw between girlfriends and um in pretending, actually, you know, in, in all of your in all three of your books, it, you know, also in How Do You Like Me Now, there is a romantic relationship. The the characters are in for a you know, a big chunk of the plot are in a romantic relationship, whether that's at the beginning or the end. And those relationships are complex. You, I don't think I've ever seen you describe a romantic relationship in a way that isn't, you know, intensely complex, isn't the sort of like, look, this is not going to solve all the problems. Like you were very anti the happy ending. Um, and I think there's particularly, there's a bit at the end of, uh, of pretending. The heroine says, I, you know, I love a man, but it's, it has not solved all my problems. It has not made my life slot into place like I thought it would. There is no end that we can hide behind after we found that we loved each other. I have noticed this as a sort of continuing thread. Um, and I wonder why why it is so important to you to give that sort of nuanced depiction of, of romantic relationships in your novels. It's a tricky one. I always, like, whenever I sort of chat to my husband about, like, the book I'm planning to write or the book I'm writing, I'm quite private. I squirrel it away for a good couple of drafts, but he'll always be like, is this one going to have a happy ending? <laughs> and I'm like... No, when I'm like, well, or I always kind of go, yeah, it really is, it really is. And then when I eventually like give him the draft, he's like, no, this isn't. I'm like, I think it is. <laughs> I, I always think that my endings are happy. And then my editors are a bit like, should we lighten this up a bit? And you know, and, um, like, because I don't know. To me, the happiness has always comes from a character being able to. I don't know, to me, any story worth hearing is about a character who believes something that's fundamentally untrue about themselves at the beginning of the book and goes through the ridiculously painful process of realising that they might be wrong about themselves. Like, that to me is what, what any story is. And so that, to me, is is always really happy. But if you bring in, yeah, sort of heterosexual relationships to it, my book's never like, and then I met the man and then he made me realise that actually I'm great and so happily ever after because I said that isn't how psychology works. You know, it's never like <laughs> you go to a therapist and you're like, I hate myself. And they're like, you know what you need? A boyfriend. <laughs> if you just find a boyfriend to say you're great, that means all this is going to go away. That It doesn't come from that. And um, I do find the the dance that we're now currently dancing between women who have had fourth wave feminism, who are heterosexual, 
trying to navigate having intimate relationships with men and and what that for men that grew up with nuts and zoo magazine and online porn and you know all this sort of stuff like I find that really interesting as well and so yeah I just think it's it would be lying to sort of say that you meet someone you fall in love and that's it I, I really believe in love I think falling in love with someone whether it's through a friendship or through romantic is just why we're here on this earth and it's wonderful but um culture and everything brings a lot of baggage into it and to me the happy ending is always like you learning to love yourself as Oprah and cliche just you said that to me is always the most the thing that's gonna give you a stronger sense of happiness and grounding to be in your life rather than these relationships the relationships can help you but it's yeah to me I always think my endings are happy because my character loves themselves a little bit more by the end and understands themselves a bit more but yeah from a kind of rom-com perspective it's probably not you know as tied in a nice little bow as you know Rachel Green giving up her dream job in Paris to be with abusive <laughs> Ross and friends or whatever it is that we've been told is happily ever after <laughs> in our culture. Well yes but you know what I want to say thank you for the bravery there I guess because I think that almost the simpler option and I'm seeing this a lot across the board of sort of novels um, television programs films at the moment almost the simpler option tying into the current like self-love empowerment thing is to, is to be single at the end of the novel and then then you kind of I guess part of me like this sort of little Richard Curtis conditioned girl in me kind of thinks oh well at least maybe next chapter they they meet the love of their life and then the happy ending happens and almost I don't know I think there was a real thing that resonated and stuck with me in reading at the end of pretending like you're sort of rooting for this character um and you know to be in a relationship but it not being it not it not being the end and and that's sort of I don't know I think that was almost more powerful and that was I think you get to a point where you've been through so much romantic experience that you're like I don't actually believe necessarily in happy ever after but that was almost a close second I guess and the, and I guess the bonus prize is as you say you get to have your version of the happy ending which is having yourself having learned something about yourself yeah and having somebody to be walking along the path of you while you help figure it out but yeah the ending of pretending was tricky because you know with a novel I never want to tell people what to think and sometimes I'm not sure what I think you know even after I finish a novel I just want to you know put my stick in the puzzle and, and get people to think but yeah the opening line of the pretending was I hate men <laughs> and this chapter about all the reasons why she hates him and then it's just you know it's technically hate speech but it is the start of a joke which is at the end of the chapter she's like oh hang on you message back never mind and it's decidedly you know, can be this raging feminist until until they message back and then I always knew that I wanted the the final chapter to be I hate some yeah. men and like to show that learning and and the words as well I love a man and then I remember like going how do I write this and I remember I had to I, when I don't know what to write I go on a long a walk and I'm basically don't let myself go home until I know <laughs> what's happening and usually the act of walking means I'm not out more than 45 minutes so I remember when I knew that chapter was coming up that ending I was gone for hours and hours because I was like I don't know what I want to say here what what do I think what do I believe and and yeah and it took many hours and then then it started to f- form and then that chapter came out and it was basically unedited from 
well, I came back and I was like, okay, get this down. I think, I think this is what you're trying to say and got that out. So I, I'm glad that you liked that last chapter because it was really, I was like, God, what, what am I trying to say here? What is <laughs> right for this character in this story, which is how to try and trust and love again after significant trauma, which is what April's story is and pretending is, you know, because I don't want to say and fell in love and the trauma went away because that's not how trauma works so yeah I'm glad that you think I pulled off because <laughs> I remember it being a real mental challenge that chapter and, and, and finishing that book in a way that felt appropriate but also satisfying I think it's hopeful I think for anyone that's ever struggled with the relationship with the opposite sex you know living within a patriarchy that you know does harm to both men and women and everyone alike like it really does so it, it was it was healing and it was nice to read and I, I think also I you know this was more in girlfriends you talk about the idea of growing up in sort of 80s 90s culture and I had a podcast that you did with um Daisy Buchanan who who summarized this really well that the sort of the best way I think to describe it is you were told to Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera era of the 90s, like you, you're told what men want and you're told that it's important what men want. Um, and it's, you know, it's hard to break away from the conditioning of that. Um, what do you think the relationship between uh, feeling okay to be alone as a woman, to spend time alone as a woman, to sort of advocate for that and, you know, growing up in that culture is, do you think that that might have affected maybe your, or, you know, generally the, the, the women that you've counseled? their attitudes god yeah millennials how do millennial women feel about being alone because yeah because girlfriends very much is about yeah exploring the the formative years that we went through where you know like the christmas number one single was about a pregnant woman being driven off a bridge (laughs) and Mm. you know just (laughs) that's just the iceberg of all the things that we normalized and rape jokes and cool girl type behaviors and the word feminism just not existing and what does that mean to be alone? I don't know. I feel like oh, the one thing that I feel a lot about millennials, and I know we get a lot of grief about avocados on toast and, you know, houseplants and all that sort of stuff. But like the one thing I would say about our culture and the culture underneath us as well, but really what I'm feeling about my generation is we're trying to heal and stop a cycle of abuse like I really truly think that's like we're getting like a real um bad name whereas I feel like yeah anyone I know in my age range is kind of very self-actualized and it's like I don't want the world to be like this and I know I need to heal and I know I don't if I want to become a mom I don't want to be doing to what my parents did to me, even though I know and understand why my parents behave that way. I just, I feel like there's the amount of like emotional intelligence and insight that our generation have is like astonishing. And what we're all trying to do as a generation is really remarkable and get quite upset when people <laughs> just make jokes about us, you know? And so, yeah, I think embracing being alone is part of that healing and part of that rejection of the culture that we grew up in, which was all, happily ever after is you know ending up with a guy and giving up significant things to be with a guy like um when I go into schools for my YA stuff and I talk to teenagers about healthy relationships with what my women say like I get all these famous films up that they love and I'm like look at 
what's happening and almost all of them I call it dream denial almost all the girls are literally giving up jobs normally you know careers and stuff to you know like 13 going on 13 (laughs) at the end of friends or the end of how to lose a guy it's usually like some woman who's about to go and like kick ass and the man's going chasing her through the airport going no don't go fulfill your life's ambition like come and come back and be a girlfriend so true. Notting Hill as well, actually. That's the ending of it. Yeah, she just gets pregnant and sits on a bench. That's the end of that. Takes an indefinite <laughs> sabbatical from her career. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, being alone is, uh, yeah, quite a radical thing. But I am seeing, yeah, more and more women in my generation choose to do it. And I don't know, as somebody who has been single and has been, you know, and is in a, like, oh, sells and smoke, in a very happy marriage, the happiness is equal but different. And I think the happiness that I was able to achieve in my marriage came from knowing how happy I was by myself. And it is that real cliche, you got to learn to love yourself before. But it was, um, again, like making myself go out for dinner, like making myself go to the cinema. It was, I was like, I have to be happy. <laughs> no, no man currently wants me <laughs> like that I want back. And I did find such deep, profound joy from being single when I was in my early 30s. Um, and yeah, it, but it did feel like a radical act that required huge amounts of like work and rather than and rejecting things and trying to undo narratives in my head. And um, I was just delighted when I come across, yeah, happily single people because I'm just like, oh, you found, you, found, you found the peace. And I do think there's a real peace from being happily alone. I think sometimes you get more peace actually from being happily single than you do from being in a happy relationship because you've just got yourself to deal with. You've not got somebody else's like bad mood <laughs> when they come home from work or, you know, or just, you know, you know, there's the moment you bring somebody else into your life, you're negotiating, whereas if you're just by yourself, it's very relaxing. Mm, yeah, there are definitely, definitely perks to both. Certainly less complicated, but then, you know, sometimes complication in the form of a wonderful person is what you want to invite in. It's, it's hard. And, and so when it happened for you, when it was that you sort of, you know, you met your husband, do you think you were at a peak of sort of self-love or, you know, calm with being alone? Or do you think it was, you know, just also a bit of luck and a bit of what happened to come into your life at that time? Because I think that some sometimes all this narrative around manifesting suggests that you sort of, you know, you become self-actualized and then dream your person into existence. I don't know how true that can be. No, I was, I remember when I met my husband, I had, was very reluctant. I think he's downstairs. <laughs> I had talking about it. Um, it was... <laughs> Yeah, I was very reluctantly sat up on a date with him just because my friend was like, you just need to stop being so weird and just go on a date. Because I was just like, but I'm just so happy. And I truly was so happy. Just like, just stop being weird and just go on a date with a man because it's been a long, like a while and you just need to stop and like making a thing. And I was just like, all right. And kind of almost duplicate her. Yeah. And then I think by date three, I remember thinking, oh dear, like this is life's going to get complicated now and I had like I had my little life plan I was trying to buy a flat near you know by the sea in Brighton and I was going to get my cat and when you meet somebody who's very you know like feeling of God this is very significant and feels different and all the cliches that people say when you meet the one as it were like did feel true to me and I was like and then yeah I remember being really quite pissed off because <laughs> it was a massive rupture it is I don't think people talk enough about how love is a rupture in your life and also how love makes you quite crazy you know because you could suddenly start going on like a massive chemical hormone 
you know it's like taking mdma twice a day or something like i wouldn't know because i'm like very sad and bookish and <laughs> taking mdma but like it's uncomfortable and i think wanting to find love is the most natural normal thing in the world so like we're you know we're bred and born for attachment and to attach other people and if you look at the science of the way that our brains behave when we fall in love with people, we we see falling in love, we attach it to feeling survival. And that's why heartbreak feels like you're dying. So it's pretending you're just completely opting out of that is, you know, a lie. But it's um so I don't think you have to be completely happy by yourself because you're sort of if you really know what you want to meet someone. But um I think it's useful to be in a place where you meet the love of your life and you're like, this is really inconvenient. <laughs> I have actually really come to a place of peace but it's different for everyone I just feel very lucky that I had that inconvenience happen to me <laughs> oh I do that reluctantly falling in love now that that sounds like a nuanced but very believable love story I, I think there's almost a different way that you fall in love when you're not being rescued I suppose I look back to maybe my first relationship in my sort of uh, god late teens early 20s and I kind of think that would have felt different that would have maybe felt like oh good, they've come along. Whereas I think you get to a point where it's not clear cut. You're never going to have a clear cut point where you're like, right, I want to now dissolve into the mania that is is love. Because you just never know when you're going to meet somebody. So you kind of want to live your life happily rather than just waiting to, to meet somebody. But then of course, if you're doing that effectively, when you meet someone, it's going to derail your life. So it's, yeah, it's a kind of, for people who do want to find people, it's, it's tricky because you have to kind of, act, you know, live in a way where you're like, I'm not, I'm looking, but I'm not going to make it everything <laughs> that, you know, but then, yeah, like you meet someone and you combust on each other and then you're suddenly like, hang on, this means I can't, might not have time to go away every single weekend because I have to see, you know, and then there's that huge thing that happens when you start falling in love with someone is like you have to give up tiny bits of your life here and there so you can actually just see each other yeah how how has it influenced you know, being in a long-term relationship being you know being married how has that influenced your sort of your writing do you feel as able to sort of retreat and go away is it is it easier is it harder I'm very lucky that yeah my husband you know he knew what I did for a living when we met I think he read a few a book or two when we met so he kind of knew what he was getting himself in for and um and he liked the fact that I was a writer and it's a nerve-wracking thing to be doing in a romantic relationship I think that isn't functional or healthy because you want to be able to write as freely as possible and you don't want them to be like oh god is that me (laughs) so you don't want to be inhibited and I'm just very lucky that he is very supportive and yeah has never been like oh have you actually just using this novel to you know get back at me for that argument we had about washing up I think it was one of the moments where I was like oh I really think I'm gonna marry this person was when I was writing that I hate men chaps (laughs) or pretending it sort of was explaining stuff to him I was like I've got this and this and this but like what other things do men do he's like giving the ideas he's like oh what about like how we always take over the the stereo system at like at house parties I'm like you you did that he's like god I did and and he's like adding to it I was like felt very lucky that you know he's he's able to handle my writing considering my writing is quite aggressive towards straight men he embraces that so you've also got to be careful if you're a writer to not have somebody who thinks you're the most talented person in the world either you know he's like he's very proud of what I do but he doesn't he's not a super fan you know he's just like no that book was good or and then I've got some notes and yeah it's a tricky 
thing to be doing in a romantic relationship when you write about romantic relationships. But um, yeah, we think we've got the balance. Right. Sounds like yeah. It sounds like you navigate it well. And yeah, of course, that thing about you. I mean, it would be very strange if you were with someone who was just a super fan of your work. You just you then become a novelist, not the person. Yeah. Well, we're actually coming to the final question, um, which is the question that I ask everyone on this show. Um, we've talked a lot about time alone, but what is your alonement when time alone is objectively joyful, restorative, and positive? Oh, if I'm going to answer this honestly, I'm going to sound like a massive twat, but I'm just going to go for it. So go for it. <laughs> I, I've, I've been open in the past about I had something not very nice happen to me in my 20s and I had PTSD as a result of that and had to, you know, had to work quite hard to, to find equilibrium again. And somebody recommended this thing called transcendental meditation. And I went on a course and it's yeah, you have to do it in the morning and in the evening, 20 minutes a day. And um, it is the best thing I've ever done in my life. But you can't talk about transcendental meditation. You can't even say the word about sounding like a massive twat and like you've joined a cult. So, <laughs> so for 20 minutes twice a day, I make that time to sit and meditate. And my cat always comes and sits on my lap, which is really lovely. And yeah, it just works for me. It's a bit like, have you ever seen a, like when you turn a shark upside down, you know how the shark just goes completely still. That's what happens. Amazing analogy. <laughs> have you ever seen it? It's really cool. No. If you Google it. I'll say if you just get, I don't know, if you ever need to fight off a shark, just somehow get them on their back and they just kind of completely bliss out. And that's what that does. Yeah. So, and that is where I'm alone. I close the door and I, I do that. And it's the, it's the best thing I've ever done in my life. Okay. And talk us through. So, what what is the? Oh no! Oh my god! So yeah, so I tried lots of different. I tried I tried all the meditations. So I got out the menu and went through all the mindfulness and the headspace and all that sort of stuff. And um, transcendental meditation is basically. Oh my god! I'm going to say a word. I'm going to say the word mantra. Right. Love it. <laughs> you have to go to a ceremony and you're given a mantra, which is basically just a vibrational sound that some very clever people worked out thousands of years ago. It has a calming effect. Okay, so it's like like an om or something like that. Yeah, it's just yeah. like, yeah, om works. And all you do is you just close your eyes and just whisper the sound to yourself over and over for 20 minutes. And it is just like having a gong almost inside of you. And so after about 10 minutes, the vibrational sound that you're whispering to yourself is just chills yourself, like just chills you out. And after 20 minutes, you do, and you do transcend, like you do kind of go in a weird trance. All the Beatles did it, like Ringo Starr was a big fan. <laughs> and yeah, and it just really worked for me because I had tried every meditation going and, um, to try and find some peace and nothing works. But this is quite easy because you don't have to concentrate on your breathing, which if you've got history of PTSD or anxiety, you sometimes can get quite panicky or, you know, this really is, you're just, yeah, for example, saying om to yourself. And if you kind of drift off, you're like, oh, hang on. And you just say the word again and it just really works. And it is, yeah, I think one of the main reasons I'm so happy in my, in my own company now is I think it's because somebody sent me on that course and it really changed my life. But yeah, I sound like a massive loser. (laughs) I adore it and you know I also I I don't think I've heard that much about transcendental meditation specifically Um, and it's nice to hear something that's like not the latest trend yeah it's I didn't know much about it the person who trained me was like look if you're the kind of incense crystal person 
when I'm doing this ceremony, you can really go for it or you can just I can explain the neuroscience of what's going to happen to you. And you just got to accept the fact that this ceremony is paying homage to the thousands of years of you know, tradition that this comes to. And I'm like, I will go for the neuroscience and <laughs> bite my lip while you're chanting methods and just give me access to that vibrational noise, please. And just sort of sat there trying not to laugh during the, during the <laughs> ceremony, just like digging my fingers into myself. Whereas us people in the course were like, la, 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 la. Um, I was like, just give me the, the sounds that like, to me, the science of like a vibrational noise in your head will have a calming impact on your central nervous system and, you know, mean that more oxygen goes to your frontal lobes, which means that your amygdala, which is like the more fight or flight response in your brain, you know, will be not as in control as your responses to life. Like all the stuff I was just like, yes, scientifically this makes sense, but yeah, you you still have to say the words transcendental meditation out loud. (laughs) Maybe needs a (laughs) rebrand. But um, yeah, I love my own company since I went on that course and it did, it did heal me from, from my PTSD. So um, I, yeah, huge, huge advocate. That's so wonderful to hear. I'm so happy it had that impact on you. And, and can I ask when was it and who was it that sent you on the course to begin with? It was my agent, I think. She went on one, a retreat and she came back and I was in a, in a bad way. And um, cause she is like half agent, half like fairy godmother. And um I remember saying, like, I'm really struggling, actually, like, um, really struggling with this PTSD. And I think I might need medication, but I don't particularly want to take it because I'm scared it will impact my writing, even though I know that's ridiculous. I've still got that fear. And, and she was like, you need to go on this course. Um, you need to go on this course. And um, basically sort of booked me on that week. And, and I, you know, I think when you're at that point, you're willing to try anything. And, yeah, I remember I was having my ceremony and wanting to die because it was so you know, that like you have to bring like a sacrifice of rose petals. Oh, it was ridiculous. And I was in a rush. I ended up having to go to like a Marks and Spencer's and the cheapest pet rose flowers I could spend were like were 12 quid. And I turned up and then they like were ripping the head off these 12 quid roses. And I was like, they were 12 quid. And then I'm just dedicating them to the thing. So I, and I was like, oh my God, that's 12 pounds worth of flowers. <laughs> that was just so just not the person really into the ceremony but then when they gave me my mantra and they were like right now you just need to like repeat this to yourself and we'll be back in 20 minutes and they left and I was like this is the worst thing I hate this I hate this I hate this oh my god I can't believe I've spent like 150 pounds to be here I can't believe they've ripped up my flowers just was going hang on hang on try to remember the mantra try to remember the mantra and I was just hating life until after about 15 minutes suddenly I was the upside down shark and they actually came back after about 40 minutes and I hadn't realized time had passed at all. Wow. And they were like, surprise, welcome to how great this is. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'm a convert. Is it almost quite hard? I mean, it sounds like you can spend a very large amount of time like that if you're not careful. <laughs> yeah, you, they have a timer. So you have a timer that you set. But yeah, there's sometimes if they like the app will glitch, I'll be out for an hour and I'm like, kind of undoes how relaxed I am because I'll like, be like I really swear it's been 20 minutes and eventually you're like maybe the time is broken on my phone and then you see that it has and you're like oh my god it's an hour and you're like fuck <laughs> on the train and it's just like I'm just, I'm sure that you and then you can't really be like I'm so sorry I'm late but I was meditating <laughs> I was no, sorry no, 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 transcendental <laughs> meditating yeah I just transcended for too long like you're just like um my train was delayed <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing but you know I think the really lovely thing about that story as well is that your agent sent you or that you were 
just that you were sent. I think that this is a really nice gift that we can give each other and facilitating each other's aloneness. It's got almost like a paradox, right? Like go get better at being by yourself. Here's my gift to you. Yeah, no, that's that's true. Yeah, it was. And I try to make lots of people go on the course, but yeah, they just think I've joined a cult. And they're like, oh, <laughs> what he's talking about enlightenment again. What happens? <laughs> he's so cynical. Uh, this is true. Well, you know, it's still 10% of me thinks it's a cult and I'm facilitating it by uh, sharing out this podcast. But <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I'm very, very intrigued. I think uh, actually um, Emma Forrest, who was uh, yeah previous guest on this season, also is also a big fan of it. So very, very tempted. Oh, there to we go. Jennifer Aniston. Try that out. Jennifer Aniston. There we go. All the celebs. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, well, Holly, thank you. It was such a joy to speak. Oh, it was lovely to chat to you too. Sorry if I've accidentally recruited all your listeners to that I haven't realised I'm part of yet. Yeah, tuning straight out of this and into the Transcendental Meditation Podcast. Give them all your money. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Holly. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Alonement. If you loved this episode, then... You know what I would really like you to do is to share it with someone that you think would benefit. That's all from me. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 